The fatigue of the climb was great, but it is interesting to learn once more how much further one can go on one second wind. I think that is an important lesson for everyone to learn, for it should also be applied to one's mental efforts. Most people go through life without ever discovering the existence of that whole field of endeavor which we describe as second wind. Whether mentally or physically occupied, most people give up at the first appearance of exhaustion. Thus, they never learn the glory and the exhilaration of genuine effort. That is a uh, diary note from Catherine Graham's mother, and it's shared in Catherine Graham's book, Personal History. I started reading this book because it's been suggested over and over again, and Warren Buffett, Matt Hackett, and a friend emailed me all in the same month that they were reading this book and they thought this book was good or that this was a book they turned to again and again, and I knew that it was time that I had to read it. And there's a lot of passages like that. There's uh, inclusions of her mother's diary. There's stories about her father. They talk about She talks about what it was like to uh, buy the Washington Post and be part of that family. Catherine Graham writes about growing up with so much money that she wasn't self-sufficient. She got to college and she had been wearing the same yellow sweater for weeks on a time. And she saw that her classmates were doing something with their sweaters where they were laying it out and they were cleaning them, but she didn't know how to do it. So she sent her yellow sweater to the cleaners and she writes that she never did learn how to, how to wash it. Overall, it's a book that I'm enjoying and I think I will read cover to cover. But let's dive into the notes. One. Russ Roberts, the host of the Econ Talk podcast, had another good episode this week. This was with Jim Epstein, and they talked about Bitcoin and the role Bitcoin is playing in different economies around the world and how it's working on the black market and not for illicit things on the black market, but how people are leveraging the cheap electricity in Venezuela to mine bitcoins in part of their room or they're renting space in an industrial complex and they're setting up computers and they're transferring those bitcoins to an exchange and then on that exchange they're buying Amazon gift cards and they're shopping on Amazon for food supplies because food is hard to get to at some of the grocery stores especially if you're middle or lower class and then how they're consuming that food and it was an interesting episode about the entire ecosystem around bitcoin and it was a good examination and explanation about how people will figure things out. If a system is not designed well, people will figure out ways around it. As I listened to the episode, I was actually reminded of the old um, building a college story that's told. And it goes something like this, where an architect will come in and they'll design buildings and an engineer will construct a new section of campus. But what they won't do, what they won't build, is they won't put in sidewalks. And the story goes that the engineer and the architect promise to come back next year after the students have worn the paths that they think are ideal and they'll put sidewalks in there. And that story, along with the Bitcoin story in Venezuela, is a nice examination of how systems work and we can try to design things like we can try to design an economy like they have tried in Venezuela but people are going to find their way around it it's sort of like water where you can try to stop up water or you can try to contain water but as long as the force of gravity is acting on water you're going to have to deal with that thing another 
telling story from this episode of Econ Talk was when, right off the bat, Jim Epstein talks about the price of Bitcoin and how he maybe should have bought some early on. This is what he said. I'll also say one more thing, which is that in 2011, when you interviewed Gavin, the price of a Bitcoin was 90 cents. So I also mm-hmm. wish I'd purchased a few. But- no, you're not alone there. Uh, I have a friend, uh, a very wise advisor, advisor friend who mocks me constantly for my failure to purchase at that point. Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, though. Yeah. And we don't keep track of all the times we didn't buy all the things that didn't go up. But it, it is somewhat unsettling. Uh, we don't. Did you hear that explanation from Russ Roberts at the end? Did you hear what he said there? It's unsettling, but he knows there's a hindsight bias. Russ Roberts knows that he's made lots of decisions in the past that didn't go up a thousand percent or whatever Bitcoin has risen. There's many situations like that where he would have been wrong, but we don't remember what those things are. We don't write them down. We don't keep track of them. So we we get this false sense of of being right, of having this oracle-like quality to ourselves, where if we kept track, we would be less oracle-like and a little more ordinary in our predictions. When Sam Hinkie was general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, he addressed this in some of his interviews toward the end of his tenure as that, in that position and then afterward, and he said that they would often redraft a particular draft. That is, they would choose in order of the players uh, and they had to write them down and they had to record them so you didn't get to cherry pick your own memory. You didn't only get to choose the situations when you were obviously right, when you had invested in Bitcoin or when you knew somebody was a sure thing rather than a bust. And if we don't track these things, we will be susceptible to the hindsight bias. I've been thinking about this as it relates to Snapchat. And to me, it looks like Snapchat is not a sustainable company. There's A multitude of factors that just don't make me trust the company. I don't think things are going to work out for Snapchat. And I think my case in my head is really compelling. It makes sense to me. But I just don't know because I don't know what my record is with predicting IPOs and technology stars because I've never kept track of it. So while I have opinions about Snapchat, there's nothing really to test it against. There's nothing I can point to and say, there, that's where I kept track of my decisions, and this is why you should trust me for being right. To avoid the hindsight bias, we really have to keep track of our decisions, and any system we design is going to be used in a different way than we design it, even marginally so. Considering both of those things will help us make better decisions. Two. I recently finished Difficult Conversations. It's a book from the same group of people that were part of the Harvard Negotiation Project. And this is the same group of people who wrote Getting to Yes. Getting to Yes is one of my favorite books. It's a book that I don't, I don't reread as often as I should. But every time I do reread it, it brings me a new appreciation and understanding about how to talk with people and how to uh, get to yes, how to find agreement on issues. Difficult Conversations is an extension of that, and the book was only okay as far as I was concerned. There were some good parts to it, some nice tips, but overall it just didn't seem to have the same bang for the buck as getting to yes did. The overarching idea of difficult conversations is to 
try to get to a point of understanding, not necessarily agreement. And this really hit home because I was reading it in the weeks leading up to Valentine's Day. And I really dislike a lot of the holidays because there's no story behind it. There's no history behind it. A lot of these sort of holidays have been hijacked by other interests, by special interests, to buy flowers and to pass out sugar-coated valentines. And in some ways, I'm perceived as a Grinch for these things. But that's just how I view it. That's how I understand the world. But as Valentine's Day approached, and I was reading this book, I began to get an understanding, but not necessarily in agreement, with the holiday. I started to think about, well, if I don't believe in Valentine's, what do I believe in? What is the understanding of the underlying issues for these things? And so I concluded that it wasn't for me to get flowers or to make cards or to give candy to someone else, but it was to show an appreciation for someone else in my own way. So that was the understanding. I didn't have to agree with a means, but I should understand the basic principle behind Valentine's Day. And as I started to think about understanding, not necessarily agreement, I began to apply it to a lot of my other interactions with people. Like how I talk to my kids and how I talk to my wife and how I talk to the teachers at school and many other situations. So overall, this book didn't have a lot of benefit. This one singular idea to strive for understanding, not necessarily agreement, had a big effect on me. Three. In addition to the opening quote that I shared from Catherine Graham's book, there was another moment of that book that really stuck out to me that had a powerful effect. Uh, Let me tell you what Graham writes. Quote, In all the turmoil of our family and our strange isolation from both our parents and from the outside world, we children were left to bring ourselves up emotionally and intellectually. We were leading lives fraught with ambivalence. It was hard to have an identity. An early example of this came one day when the telephone rang in the playroom and there was no grown-up present. Biss very fearfully picked up the phone and said, Hello? A male voice impatiently asked, Who is this? Who is this? To which Biss replied, This is the little girl. That was the only way she could think to describe herself to a strange grown-up. So the question of who we really were and what our aspirations were, intellectual or social, was always disquieting. The more subtle inheritance of my strange childhood was the feeling which we all shared to some extent of believing we had never quite going about things correctly. Had I said the right thing? Had I worn the right clothes? Was I attractive? These questions were unsettling and self-absorbing, even overwhelming at times, and remained so throughout much of my adult life, until at last I grew impatient with dwelling on the past, end quote. This is a section of Graham largely looking back at her childhood, and it, it's similar to what she said about not knowing how to, to wash her yellow sweater when she was in college. And the thing that Graham is missing, the thing that wasn't imparted on her as a child, was a backstop. She didn't have something where everything else would come up against. And as I read this, I realized it's really important for parents to instill this backstop in people. But you can instill this backstop in anybody. If you give someone where nothing else gets past it, that's the 
essence of who they are. That's, that's what a person goes to when everything else is gone. That's a powerful thing to have. And as a child, Graham didn't have that. Examples of this are religion. Religion is a common backstop for people where no matter how many, how good things get or how bad things get or how much goes wrong in someone's life, someone can turn to their, their book of, of spirituality. They can turn to uh, religion as a backstop against which everything else crashes against. Philosophy is another backstop. I've I've found that the Stoic philosophy appeals to me, and that's my backstop. Whenever things get crazy or busy or happy, my thoughts are always returning to Stoicism. And I know I'll always have that, so long as my mind works, so long as I need to have something like a backstop. Stoicism works for that. Work works for other people. Work can be a backstop where if you don't know what to do, you will go ahead and you will get to work. The key feature for those three backstops that tend to work, religions, philosophies, and work, is that all of those things are anti-fragile. All of those things can uh, gain from disorder. Anti-fragile is a term from Nassim Taleb, and he came up with that word because he didn't have anything to describe the opposite of fragile. And Taleb views this through the investment lens, where he was trying to find something that would gain from disorder in the stock market. So if the stock market was either very volatile or it was having wild swings up or down, Nassim Taleb wanted to put put himself in a position to profit from those swings, to profit from that volatility. And other investors have, have followed this idea and implemented it in their own ways. But, but in our own lives, in our own investments of time, we need to have something that is like that. We need to have something that even if things get crazy, even if you have a wild day, you have something to go back to. And work works for that. Philosophies work for that. And religion all work for that. None of those things are going to be broken by chaos. Another backstop that I sometimes see people have is consumerism. A lot of times this shows up when I'm watching the TV on the treadmill at the YMCA. And I'm just amazed at how much consumption is promoted on TV, on TV shows and on TV commercials. And it's just nonstop suggestions for consumption about what you should eat, what you should wear, what you should buy, uh, where you should go. All kinds of things like that. And... And part of me believes that, that that's a problem because consumption is not anti-fragile. Consumption is fragile. If you lose your job and you don't have money or you don't have resources or you're not around the same people anymore and the thing that you go back to is looking good and the pride that you have in a job and the way that you dress and the kind of house you have and what you and what you decorate with those are all fragile things those are all gone and if you don't have a backstop if you don't have something where all your thoughts come to rest against i think you'll end up being in trouble so graham didn't have a backstop growing up she didn't have this philosophy or this religion or this sense of work and having an anti-fragile version of one of those things is really important Four. Now that the NFL season is over, Bill Simmons has started to talk more about the NBA. And if you don't know Simmons, he's a sports commentator. He has a podcast. He has a website called The Ringer. And in a recent discussion about the NBA, 
Simmons and reporter Kevin Clark talked about the Orlando Magic, and they talked about some of the missteps this organization has had, some of the mistakes that they've made, and some of the ways that their overall goals and their overall their summary of their actions don't align. And while I agreed with a lot of what Simmons and Clark said, there was one miscue that I thought was interesting. Here's a quote from that episode. So in 2015, he took Hazonia, and I really liked Hazonia. I, uh, yeah. you know, granted, just watching him on YouTube and stuff, but just seemed like uh, almost like Marco Bellinelli on steroids or something. Like just had this very athletic swingman game that made sense with the way the NBA was being played. And um, to say that that pick has not worked out would be to almost belittle how bad the pick was. On top of it, it turned out to be one of the better drafts. So they missed yep. Porzingis by one pick, but then a few picks later, you just have this incredible run of, you know, Justice Winslow, Devin Booker. Um, yep. You had Miles Turner, Trey Lyles, even Kelly Oubre, and even Terry Rozier at number 16. All of them have been better than Hazonia. So to generalize what Simmons and Clark are talking about here is that an organization took one option, option A, that's the player that they drafted, rather than options B, C, D, and so on. So we can take this principle and we can apply it to other situations. So what Simmons is making the case for is that they took option A and with hindsight, options B, C, and D all look like they would have turned out for the better. But The mistake here is thinking that just because those other players would have been on the team doesn't necessarily mean the team would have been better. And we can also say that the player that they took could have succeeded on another team. A few minutes later in the episode, Simmons and Clark kind of superficially address this and say, well, you know, if if he would have been on the San Antonio Spurs, which is an example of a uh, franchise that's a model franchise that a lot of people cite, well, you know, you never know what would have what would have happened here. And this is this is a uh, an important distinguishing factor. When I was researching my book about Bill Belichick, which I'll link to in the show notes, uh, there was an example of this uh, within the Patriots organization. And part of the reason that Bill Belichick is a great coach is because he has excellent systems in place within his fellow coaches and within his players. Bill Belichick argues well. He understands history. He tolerates good discussions. He requires people to do their job. And one part of that is this idea that the Patriot scout Jason Licht said in in an interview. Licht said, quote, If I said a guy was a first-round pick and the Colts picked him and he turned out to be a bust, they, that is Belichick and Scott Pioli, wouldn't have looked down on me. They wouldn't have said I was a bad grader because that player in the Patriots system might have been successful. So it's easy to look back with hindsight and to say, oh, you know, that was a bad decision. We shouldn't have done A. We would have been much better off with B, C, and D. But B, C, and D could have failed too because the context matters, the situation matters. And this is a common story. This is a common underpinning of a lot of what we hear about the NBA. Such and such a player didn't work out. Well, such and such a player probably went to a team that was really bad. You have to match the person and the situation to have really excellent results. And to make any claims otherwise isn't fully considering the scope. Five. 
Nassim Taleb has a new video on his YouTube channel titled Public Understanding of Risk. And this video crystallized an idea that I didn't fully grasp from Taleb's work. And it's this idea of asking whether or not the data can double and then figuring out how dangerous a situation is. And he uses Ebola as an example, and he compares it to deaths from ladders. And Taleb says that, you know, the deaths per year from ladder falls is not going to change wildly. We can graph that, and we can extrapolate conclusions from that graph and from that data set, because it's not going to change very much, barring some crazy weird thing where the, the structure of a ladder some, somehow doesn't work all of a sudden. Ladder deaths stay consistent. But Ebola, Taleb says, is something that could easily double from one year to the next. It could be a situation where we're looking at the data in a relatively narrow scope of time, where just outside that scope, just outside what we can see, just around the corner, there's going to be this huge spike in deaths from Ebola. And it was a similar, uh, another example he used was terrorism. We can say that in 2017, terror de terrorist deaths were low, and in 2016, and 2015, and 2014, but that doesn't mean there's not going to be some uh, cataclysmic huge event in 2018. So, to understand these events that Taleb is always warning about, I realize that I can just ask myself, can this data double next year? And is it totally plausible that it could double? Well, yeah, we see this all the time with infections. We see this as the flu season goes around, that all of a sudden there can be no people or very few people one month that have the flu. And the next month we can see a lot of people that have the flu. And the flu is a relatively benign case unless it's going through your household at the time. But it's a good stand-in. It's a representation for how something uh, like that can spread. And we can extrapolate that to Ebola and say, is this something that can spread easily? Yes. Oh, then maybe we should be worried about it. So if you want to understand Taleb a little bit more, this video that he posted on YouTube was really helpful for me. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Mike's Notes.